And isn't it the beautiful irony of the gospel is that when you surrender to Jesus, that is when you're set free. It's when you say, Lord, take all of my life, all that I am, I am completely yours. And that is when the gospel begins to take root in our hearts and in our lives. You know, Gladys was embarrassed and ashamed. Her entire life, all the pretty girls had golden curls. She just had plain black hair. All of the girls kept growing, but she stopped growing. And so for Gladys, she got to the point where she was so overwhelmed with frustration because she had plain black hair and she only reached the height of four foot ten. She got to the point where she was asking, God, why are you making me this way? But she trusted the Lord. She committed to following the Lord all the way to the mission field. And it was when Gladys Allward arrived at Chanchin, China, that she realized why God had made her that way. She looked around and she saw a sea of women with plain black hair. She looked around and saw men and women who were the same height as her. You see, she had finally realized why God had made her that way. He was setting the stage to get glory through her life. And that is the point we see being made in Esther chapter 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 1. We're starting a new sermon series today called Unseen Sovereign, in which we get to walk through the book of Esther together as a faith family. We get to see how God is at work even when we do not see him. Now, if you have never read the book of Esther, I really want to encourage you to commit this afternoon to reading this book it's 10 chapters, and it is a page-turning drama. Hollywood cannot come up with the storyline that is more captivating or compelling than the book of Esther. And the more you study this book, the wider it gets. You see different nuances and perspectives that you have never seen before. Well, what we see in Esther chapter one is that God is setting the stage for Esther to save God's people from death. Now, this story is pointing to an even bigger story in which God would send one day a greater Esther, one who would save God's people from death, and he would do so through his death on the cross and victorious resurrection. So let's begin by looking at this text together. And I've put this in your notes so you can kind of follow along here. In chapter one, we see, number one, the king's dominion was vast. The book begins in chapter one, verse one. These events took place. This is a type of once upon a time. Well, what days were these? Well, remember how God brought his people out of Egypt through Moses, and God brought his people into the promised land through Joshua. 
There were then judges who rose up to lead God's people, but they continually went through the cycle of disobedience. Eventually, after 400 years of the judges, they finally said, we want a king. So God gave them a king. He gave them Saul, and then he gave them David, and then he gave them Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom broke into two groups, two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel only had bad kings, and eventually God would judge them through the nation of Assyria. The southern kingdom had a mixture of both good kings and bad kings. What we see happening is that eventually people in the southern kingdom of Judah, they were walking in such abhorrent disobedience to God, he would bring judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah through the nation of Babylon. But the Lord made a promise. He said, you're going to go into captivity, but you will only be there for 70 years. It is then that I will bring back a remnant to the land. Well, sure enough, after 70 years, the Lord uses Zerubbabel to be the leader who brings God's people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Well, it's at this point in history that the book of Esther is taking place. We still see God's people, some of whom are still living in Babylon. They've grown up there. They've become accustomed to living amongst an ungodly culture around them. This is not unlike you and I. We live in a nation, we live in a culture that has turned their hearts towards other gods. Now remember back in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Simon Peter calls believers elect exiles. We are those who have been chosen by God, but we are also living in exile. We are sojourners in a foreign land. We are just passing through this world. We are marching to Zion. We are headed to the celestial city. And one day we will be home when we are with Christ. Well, what's interesting here is that for us who are living in this ungodly culture, we are commanded to love God and love neighbor. We work for the good of the city. We, we serve our community as salt and light in a very dark and dirty world. Well, verse 1, this is where God's people are. They're in a, a pagan, godless country and culture. And it says, verse 1, that these events took place during the days of Ahasuerus. He's also known as King Xerxes. He's ruling, verse 1, over 127 provinces from India to Cush. So India to Ethiopia. He's living in Susa, verse 2, at his summer palace, which is located in modern-day Iran. And Ashuharis is one of the most powerful men in the world. He has millions of people under his leadership. He has a vast territory of responsibility of land. And he decides that it's time to throw the party of the century. So we see number two, that the king, he possessed extravagant wealth. Now in verses three through nine, we see three different parties that are taking place. The first party we see here in verse three. It says that King Ahasuerus, he held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. 
He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. This is a who's who's party. This is big names, big celebrities, generals, officials, nobles, the army of Persia in media. Now this party lasts 180 days. Can you imagine a party that lasts for 180 days? Imagine a party with just military and just the soldiers here where they can drink as much as they want for six months. That's where we are here in Esther chapter one. And for six months, the king is putting his glory and his wealth on display. Well, the king then follows up this six-month party with a second party for everybody else. Look at verse five. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. So here we have a seven-day party in which the king pulls out all the stops. He opens it up for everybody in Susa, poor and rich, famous and forgotten, everyone's included. And this party is over-the-top extravagant. Notice the vibrant colors of the fabrics in verse six. White and violet linen hangings fastened with fine white and purple linen cords. You see, purple was a color that most poor people had never seen before. Purple was such an expensive color that most of the people who did not have the resources, they had no idea what it looked like. So if someone tried to explain purple to them, they would say, well, imagine blue and red coming together. And they're like, well, I, don't, I really don't know what that looks like. Well, finally, they get invited to the king's palace, and it's like, wow, that's purple. Royalty, beauty. We see purple linen cords. They were attached to, verse six, silver rods on marble columns. We see here in the text, gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. The sidewalks were made of expensive jewels and stones. Talk about interior design, okay? This makes the Biltmore and Caesar's palace look like an outhouse. This is over-the-top extravagance. Well, what about the drinks? What's the drinking look like? Well, verse seven, drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. No two cups were the same. All of them were custom-made. There were no red Solo cups, okay? Here, Gold custom goblets for anyone to drink as much as they wanted. The royal wine was flowing freely according to the king's bounty. What were the rules for drinking? There was only one rule, verse eight. There are no restrictions. So rule number one, there are no rules. Think about it. This is not a a. a pleasant place to be. This is a place of just over-the-top wealth. 
gold couches, gold goblets, each one custom made in which you get to drink the king's finest wine and as much as you want. We're talking the rich and the poor. They're partying together at the king's palace. There's crazy drunkenness, as much as you want, no limits. And the king ordered every wine steward in his household to open up the bar and verse eight, serve each person whatever he wanted. So this one week party now, it's, it's Robin Leach, lifestyles of the rich and famous, meets Vegas, meets the Bachelorettes, meets spring break, meets Mardi Gras, all wrapped into one. Okay, do you see chapter one? Like that's what's, what's happening here. Now this is a picture of the culture we live in where there's partying and alcohol and drinking parties and no rules and chaos and debauchery and sexual perversion and power and corruption and materialism. It's all a hologram. It looks one way, but when you get up there and touch it, it's empty, it's hollow. There is no substance, there is nothing there. It leads to death. Some of you have tried the party life and you come out miserable on the other end. Why? Because you were not made to party. You were not made to find your life in drinking and in in drugs and everything else that's out there. It leads to death. This is the aroma of death. You were made to find your life in one person and his name is Jesus. And what we see here is a culture that is running rampant with ungodliness. Well, where's Queen Vashti during all of this? Well, she, verse nine, she's having her own party for the women of the palace. And then that's when things go south. The king, he's had too much to drink, verse 10. He's drunk. He wants to impress his buddies. He wants to be the envy of the kingdom. And so he decides it's time to show off his wife's body for all of the people to gawk over. So he sends seven servants, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. The king wanted to show off the beauty of his wife. He wanted everyone to stare at her figure for all of the drunk men to lust after. What a ghastly, prideful move by the king. We see number three, that the queen, she refuses to be a trophy wife. Vashti, she's not having it. She refuses, verse 12, to come at the king's command. She sees this for what it is, and she says, I'm out. What a terrible husband. Husbands must never use our wives for personal pride. Husbands, we serve our wives the way that Christ serves the church, Ephesians 5. Husbands, we gotta be willing to even lay down our own lives just as Jesus laid down his life for his bride, the church. Well, this is a courageous move here by Vashti because Xerxes, Ahasuerus, same person, he has the authority to kill her for disobedience. No one ever tells the king no. You can imagine the seven servants, they come back to the king. And in front of all the people, they say, hey, king, um, hmm, do you know your wife, uh, the queen, um, Vashti? Do you, you remember how you asked us to go and, and get her? Well, do you remember her? Okay, well, she's not, um, she's not coming. 
You could almost probably hear a gasp in the room. <gasps> like the record scratch. She's not coming. Look at verse 12. The text says this. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. The king is indignant that the queen would not come at his command. How dare she not show off her body to the kingdom? So I guess there are rules, aren't there? Isn't it interesting the man who has vast domain over all of these provinces and all the land doesn't even have control over his own wife? Here's a man who likes to peacock around his wealth and his power, but he has the inability to lead a woman? Well, we see, number four, that the king kicked Vashti to the curb. The king sought wise counsel, trying to figure out what to do with Queen Vashti, so his advisors told him, hey, she disrespected you, and when the word gets out that the queen doesn't listen to the king, then all the other wives will start disrespecting their husbands, and it's gonna be total anarchy. So the king decides, decides to depose the queen of her position. He strips her of her title. And then verse 19, her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. Well, what's happening here? God is setting the stage. As we are about to see in the weeks ahead, there's gonna be a bad guy who rises up whose name is Haman. He'll be number two in command and he's gonna issue a decree for the extermination of all Jews. Who is going to save him? Who is gonna protect God's people? Well, here's the good news. God ultimately works through the decisions of unbelievers for the good of his people and the fame of his name. Do not miss that. Do not miss this. We see all throughout the Bible, from Pharaoh to Herod to Judas Iscariot's, God ultimately works through the decisions of unbelievers for the good of his people and the fame of his name. God is a big God who is sovereign even over the decisions of the ungodly, even over the decisions of those who are intentionally and deliberately working against him. We see this in the gospel. In Acts chapter four, the early church is gathered together and they're praying these words back to the Lord. They pray for, in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. You see, God uses the opinions and choices and decisions of unbelievers and he ultimately accomplishes his own purposes which means there's nothing anybody can do to stop the gospel there's nothing anybody can do to put God in a box and prevent him from fulfilling his ultimate purpose not even Satan himself can stop a movement and the work of God we even see it in the book of Job, where before Satan can even touch Job, he has to go and ask God for permission. Satan himself is on a leash. He can only go as far as God says so. And here we see God so 
maneuvering and manipulating, I would better say ordaining these situations, these decisions of these ungodly people to accomplish his purpose. You see, Vashti, through her defiance and through Xerxes and his arrogance, it's gonna prepare the way for Esther for her to come forth to protect the people from extermination. This story is so good, y'all. Oh, this is so good. You, you, you really need to go and camp out in here. Okay, so what are, what are some takeaways from the text? Let me give you three. Three takeaways uh, from this book. The first is this. Number one, God works through the spectacular and the mundane. God works through the spectacular and the mundane. In the book of Esther, the name of God never shows up. Not once. God's name is never used. God never speaks in this book. There are no miracles. There is no prophet who rises up and gives a thus says the Lord. Doesn't happen in this book. In many ways, God is very much silent in this book and yet his fingerprints are everywhere. God is like the silhouette of a painting. You don't see him explicitly, you see him implicitly. You see God working in the shadows of the book of Esther. You see, Esther, she's not some superwoman who's elbowing for a political position so that she might gain a hearing before the king. She's not some gold digger who's hoping to marry up. She is an unassuming orphan girl adopted by her cousin Mordecai, and she's just trying to be faithful where she is. And yet little did she know, God was working through the ordinary part of her life to save the nation that would bring forth the Messiah to save the world. Don't miss this truth. God is at work in your life even when you don't see him. He's working in your life right now. At all times, at all places, John Piper says it beautifully. He says, God's doing 10,000 things in your life and you're aware of three. God is at work in your life even when you don't see him at work. You see, many of us, we're oftentimes looking for the spectacular when God is at work in the common, ordinary, everyday life. That's where we see Esther. You see, the God who parted the Red Sea and the God who raised Jesus from the dead, he is at work in your life right now. But just because you can't see him at work does not mean he's not doing anything in your life. There's a temptation that we feel like God has abandoned us and we don't feel his presence. There's a longing in each of our hearts in which we long for that last day of summer camp where we feel God's presence. We're like we're on Mount Sinai, like we're in the presence of God and we are seeing him at work. And you're like, man, I can go take over the world. But God does not leave Moses on that mountaintop. He's got to go back down. He's got a people to lead. He's got a people to feed. God does not leave you on these mountaintops spiritually. Why? Because the growth of the vegetation takes place in the valley. There are people in your life who need ministry, who need to be touched by God. And so as much as you and I, sometimes we will depend upon our spiritual growth, upon these incredible mountain high experiences, it's down in the valleys in which we see the true growth that takes place. 
You see, there are people that need ministry. There are diapers to change and lunches to be made and bills to pay and dishes that need to be cleaned and errands that need to be run. And yet God is still at work even in the humdrum, tedious, day-to-day plotting of life. Okay, if you're looking at your life right now saying, God, where are you? Please know that he is setting the stage to display his glory in your life. So God is at work, not only through the spectacular, but also through the mundane. But secondly, God is pointing to a greater king. You see, at the time Xerxes, he's the most powerful people on the earth. And yet the Bible is always pointing us to someone greater. You see, above Xerxes is another king. His name is Jesus. Xerxes is a footnote in the story of King Jesus. Listen to a comparison. Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes thought he was a man who became God, but Jesus is God who became man. Xerxes sat upon his throne, but Jesus got off his throne and came to dwell with his people. Xerxes never experienced poverty or humility, but Jesus experienced both poverty and humility to be able to identify with us. Xerxes never spent any part of his life serving, but Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes used his power to hurt women. Jesus used his power to honor women. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions, but Jesus died for his enemies, saving billions. Xerxes sat on a temporary throne in Susa, but Jesus sits on his eternal throne in heaven. Xerxes died and no one worships him today, but Jesus died and rose again and now billions worship him. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end, but Jesus' kingdom will never come to an end. We look at this King Xerxes, and he is nothing in comparison to King Jesus. Oh, come to Christ and adore him and worship him and see him for who he is, that he is the king of all kings. Third and finally, I want you to see God is inviting you to his banquet. He's inviting you to his banquet, the banquet that Xerxes is putting on here. It's a picture of an even greater banquet that's coming. The -the over-the-top decor in Babylon, it pales in comparison to the glory that's coming for the redeemed. In Matthew 22, Jesus calls upon believers to go out to the highways and byways and then call people to come to the wedding banquet. Anybody and everybody can come to the banquet. Your ticket to get into the banquet is to believe the gospel. It's to trust in Jesus by faith. John the apostle tells us what this is gonna look like in Revelation 19. He says, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. That's us, by the way. This is the church saying, hallelujah, 
Because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear. Bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. Indeed, there is a feast, there is a banquet, there is a party that is coming for all who have trusted in Jesus. Question, are you going to be there? You are invited to come to this banquet to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's open to anybody and everybody who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus by faith. There is a place setting with your name on it the moment you believe the gospel. And God is calling upon the church to go out into the highways and the byways and to call people to come. Everyone is included. Everyone is invited. But you got to have a ticket. And the ticket to get in is faith in Christ. That's how you get into this. This is a beautiful picture of what's coming in which God is going to gather the redeemed from across all time, from all four corners of the globe. And he's going to bring us all together and we're going to celebrate the victory that Christ has won for us. Question, will you be there? If not, believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Bank your life upon him. That he went to the cross and he died for your sins in full, all of it, paid for. And he was buried, but he rose again on the third day, giving eternal life to any who call upon his name. Today, you can be there at the banquet by trusting in Christ. Put your faith in Jesus and you will be saved, you will be secured, and you're invited to the banquet table of God. So here's the impact point. Here's the call that we see from God. It is to trust the Lord to set the stage for your life. You see, God is always setting the stage to display his glory. And oftentimes, we don't know what God's doing. God, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me? He doesn't often give us the answer, but he does say, trust me. Trust me. I'm working out my sovereign purposes. You may be going through pain today and you don't understand why. You may have questions and you're just not getting the answers. You may have fear of bad news over what's about to come your way. May I say to you, you are not alone. For on that Saturday, 2,000 years ago, the disciples, they went into hiding the man that they had given their lives to, the man that they had loved and followed, the man that they had committed themselves to was butchered on a cross. He was nailed to a cross. He was now dead. They go into hiding. They have fear and doubt. And what are we gonna do? And we are next. What is God doing? He was setting the stage for Easter Sunday. 
God is always setting the stage for glorious triumph for the good of his people and the fame of his name. Because the next day, that man, his heart started beating again. The blood started pumping again. Air filled his lungs. Jesus stood up and he walked out of that grave. And he is alive today. You see, God was setting the stage for the glorious triumph of his son. God is doing the same thing right now in your life. Whatever you're facing, it may be difficulty and trial, suffering and, and pain, doubt and struggle. God is setting the stage to display his power and his glory through your life. So what are you to do? Trust him. Love him and follow him with all of your hearts. And though you don't have the answers that you want and you don't have the comfort that you need, you have Christ. And there's coming a day in which these light and momentary afflictions are not worth compared to glory, compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So Westwood, trust the unseen sovereign. The one whom right now you cannot see, but who is working out all things for your good and for his glory. Let's pray.